Welcome to the Building and Growing Podcast, James. We're delighted to have you here today. Thanks for having me, man. I'm yeah, excited to be here. You're most welcome. So look, James, do you want to introduce yourself, um, talk a bit about your current position at Fuel and uh, previous experience? Yeah, sure. So I look after what we call strategic partnerships, which most people think is like B2B sales, but actually we call strategic partnerships like IFA, like financial advisors, wealth managers, that kind of thing. Um, so Fuel's an early stage VC. Obviously, I know you had Tom on recently, so you've heard all that stuff already, but my role in particular is like investor relations, sales, Fantastic. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, my background, so I started off, I started off as a cashier at a bank, kind of worked for a guy who realized that customer relations was like the most important thing when it comes to selling. So learned a lot from that, went into like pensions, investments, all the usual stuff. Nice. Um, and then joined the kind of venture for world like 2016-ish. Yes. Um, joined with a platform. So we were a platform that had loads of different venture funds like EIS, SCIS, VCT funds on the platform. And then we sold like 50 of them. Yes. Um, and then spent a few years there and then joined my first sort of direct fund early 2020. Um, mm -hmm. Worked for a guy that, you know, built his first company up and sold for like three quarters of a billion dollars on wow. NASDAQ. So yeah, incredible guy to learn from, a guy called John Bailey. Um, spent a few years there learning from him and then joined Fuel Ventures last year. Um, Fuel, for me, the reason I joined Fuel was one, because of the founder, Mark. So yes. Mark's background was similar to me, like he left school at 16, went off work, he started off as a chef, um, started opening a few restaurants, then realized restaurants are very hard to scale. You know, you can't be in three or four places at once. Yeah. So yeah. he then founded what was now My Voucher Codes back in the early 2000s, yeah. um, scaled that, sold it for a, a nice chunk of change. Um, but what Mark's done at Fuel is build an unbelievable team around him. Like mm. the team's all very young, they're all dynamic, all the usual stuff. But yeah, the caliber of people there really kind of impressed me. So yeah, jumped uh, jumped into them last summer. Um, yeah, haven't looked back since, been loving it. Fantastic. Well, look, congratulations. Thanks and, very much. And, you know, glad it's been a smooth landing <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, you've certainly done a lot. You've had exposure to a lot of different industries and mm -hmm. it's been an incredible growth story. Yeah. It's been good. It's, you know, we've seen a lot change in the last two years, but we've also seen a lot change in the last five years. Yeah. A lot's changed in the last 10 years. Like I'm 33 now, so I've been doing it for enough time to say I've worked for over a decade. But... Yeah, venture's very different today than it was even a couple of years ago. So, yeah, loving it. Indeed. And, you know, you touched upon the fact that your role is really investor relations. Is that something that, you know, you thought you'd end up in? How did it happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not very, I'm not very analytically, you know, I'm not a maths whiz or anything like that. So the kind of analysts, that kind of side never really appealed to me, but like I said, I love talking to people, whether that's investors, clients, founders, whatever. Yes. I love hearing that side of things. So the whole, naturally, if you like talking to people, then I guess sales is the kind of the role you go down. Um, yes. So yeah, it's it's something I enjoy. You know, when we talk to founders, we get to hear from them why they're starting their company, why they're doing what they're doing. You, know, the, you see the passion, you like you, you get to see the light in their eyes. That's That's the part I love. So the sales role for me is kind of, you know, investor relations works differently at different companies, you know, depending yeah. on the size of the company, you could be a public company and then it's a whole other world. But with the stuff that I do, you know, the basic day to day is, you know, fielding incoming investor inquiries, investor outreach. So going out and finding new investors, unfortunately, yeah. 
you know, investors don't just land on your laps. You have to go <laughs> out, find them, you know, build a sales funnel, all the rest. So yeah, yes. loving it. Yeah, fantastic. And so look, I, you know, you, you touched upon the fact that, you know, you're 33, you've been in sales for a little while now. Yeah. Um, how did you build up, let's say, your, your book and build up that funnel across you know, many, many years and build strong relationships. So I think the main, so when I, st I started off for a pension fund back in 2010-ish, yes. um, and that was originally back in the day, like you got given like a geographical patch. Mm. So I looked after, for example, Kent and South East London. Yes. You have like 300 financial advisor firms in your patch. Yeah. My job was to go and see them, you know, probably once a week for each of them, go and chat to them, see what they're doing, build the relationship that way. Yes. And that just kind of evolved. So every company I worked at, you know, I'd end up then dealing with a bit of a bigger patch and a bigger patch. And mm. eventually now I think I've you know, dealt with probably a couple of thousand financial advisors over the years. Far out. All different size of companies, you know, right from the one person company that's, you know, working out of their home right up to the kind of, you know, tier one bank level. But yeah, you kind of build up that network and salespeople move around. You know, they used to be, I think probably the generation before us, there was a big stigma if you've moved around a lot in your career, like oh, yeah. you work one place for 20 years and you retire, but or a bit more than that. But now I think salespeople have to believe, you have to believe in what you sell, number one. If you're yeah. selling something that you don't like, <laughs> it's hard to sell it to clients that you've known for that long. Um, yes. And I think the most people, most, you know, there's cliche about people buy from people, but actually you do, your relationships are as strong as what you used to sell. So if you've sold yeah. someone a dud, they're not going to take your call at your next company. Indeed, um, indeed. So yeah, you just kind of build up that book and you know, I work with a couple of other people that again have worked in that kind of financial advisor field. So you build up your investors, you know the people that you know want to invest in the sort of funds you're working for. Um, but yeah, just carried on every single company, you kind of acquire some new clients and then when you move on, you sort of speak to them in six to 12 months time whenever your non-compete finishes and <laughs> yeah, go from yeah, there. That's it. And look, I think that's a really good point that you made about the fact that, you know, people won't buy from you again if you've sold a dud. And yeah. it, it, it's really, it sort of puts the pressure on salespeople in terms of picking, you know, the right job, the right mm. company. You spoke about the fact, you know, both with um, market fuel now and previous um, mm. uh, founders of the other companies that you were really impressed by mm. their track records and the yeah. teams that they're building and I think it's something that people don't really think about when it comes to choosing jobs you know a lot of I think more so now than it used to be like maybe five years ago mm. but I think you know there's all this stuff about how you know more candidates out there you know they're choosing the jobs they want now rather than just oh, it's an extra you know, 10% on the salary. But I think yeah. for most people, if you're in a sales role, if you don't like what you're selling, it's very difficult to sell it with confidence. So yes, yes. yeah, like, you know, when I look at new companies, I'd, you background check them, you do all that sort of stuff, but then you just, you listen to the founders, you listen to the existing salespeople, you know, how do they sell it? Are they actually sort of compassionate about it? And yeah, it's it's very important because nowadays, if you join somewhere and then it turns out to be like completely different than you thought, you know, you can't leave a company after a month because you don't like it. So you have to do that kind of due diligence research before you join and kind of really, yeah, get your background checks, I guess. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so, you know, at the beginning, you, you talked about the fact that you're selling to IFAs and mm -hmm. say wealth advisors um, uh, and other stakeholders in the industry. Are you able to talk about sort of fundraising for SEIS and EIS funds? Yeah, so it works 
depending on the fund, it works differently from different places. So there's kind of two ways. SEIS and EIS, they're great schemes in the UK. Yes. You know, a lot of companies probably wouldn't get funded without them. Mm. A lot of investors probably wouldn't invest in this kind of stuff without the sort of schemes in place. Because yeah. depending on how you look at it, you know, it's either it's it's a way to mitigate the risk of an early stage investment yes. by using the tax relief. But the way that fundraising works is very different depending on the type of fund. So mm. some funds will have, for example, they're going to have, you know, 10 companies they want to invest into. They'll agree term sheets and everything else with those 10 companies. Mm -hmm. And then they'll go out and fundraise afterwards. Okay. They won't necessarily have a pot of capital sat there ready to invest as soon as they see them. Yes. So fuel differs slightly where we raise the money and then we deploy it afterwards. So okay. Okay. Mainly, you know, the main impact from a founder is if you're a founder raising, say, a million pound round, if you go to a VC and they say, yeah, we're going to invest a million pounds, you think, great, you know, you've got all your expansion plans, you know what you want to do with the money. But then if the VC turns around and says, we're going to, you know, drip feed that £100,000 for the next 10 months, you think, oh, hang on, like, you can't do half the things you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. All you do with that is you strangle the growth of the company. The found, I mean... Founders aren't children. Some of them might be young, but they're not kids. Like, yeah. if they've got a business plan, they've got the thing there. You know, if a VC is looking to invest, the best thing they can do, the first thing they should do is give them the capital they're looking for. So, the other way for fundraising of the fund is, you know, you raise the money first, and then you go out and find the companies. Yes. The different, the difficulty with that for newer funds and like emerging managers is, if you haven't got an established track record, mm. it's hard to, you know, if I say to you, hey, Lucas, you know invest in this company that we've uh, invested in my new funds i've got no track record i don't know where i'm going to invest you know you don't hang on no, i'll wait and see yeah but, yeah indeed you know for companies like us now we've got to a stage where we can say to people here's the last 10 companies we backed we're going to look for another 10 companies that look like this yeah you know, come on board and that means that when we then look at investing in a company we can write them a ticket so for our seed early seed fund mm. we do between kind of one to three million pound tickets yes for our follow-on fund we do kind of between three and five million and we'll do that up front in one go wow you know we want the founders to be able to just they don't have to worry about making payroll next month they should just focus on running the business so yeah. yeah yeah they're the two kind of ways most funds will raise from a kind of mixture of like angel investors, high net worth beat individuals, yes, and then financial advisors. So financial advisors play a massively important part because they obviously look after you know a hundred, a thousand clients of their own. Yeah. So financial advisors have the part of you know looking at the funds. Do the funds meet the right criteria? Have they got a good track record? What's their yes. you know, What's their investment thesis? Do they have experience delivering what they want to invest into? Mm. So for us, yeah, when we talk to financial advisors. It's really important that, you know, one, we're not selling a dud, but two, you know, you've got all that information there because people now, they want so much more information, which to be honest, they should have wanted five years ago. But yeah, yeah. I think the pandemic and stuff has really opened people's eyes as to, you know, looking under the bonnet, it just not just taking things on face value. They want to see the evidence. They want to see the diligence. So. Yeah, it's been an interesting time to raise, but it's been good. Yeah, fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think uh, over the past couple of years, we have seen, you know, some pretty big valuations. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, there were some companies that really benefited from it. Yeah. Um, but really interesting points about, you know, the type of, um, you know, the fact that IFAs want to do due diligence. Are you able to talk a little bit about sort of what they look for um, when they're doing their due diligence? Yeah, sure. So, you know, their due diligence at two levels. They do it on the fund. 
yes. or the fund manager or the fund provider, whatever you want to call it. So for us, you know, advisor that comes in today will do diligence on fuel ventures. You know, yes. what's our track record? What's our management team look like? What's the investor team look like? Mm. Do we have experience investing in tech or have we kind of completely pivoted overnight? Yeah. The second level then is I'll look at the investee companies. So, you know, if we're lining up, so we've got a tranche coming up in a couple of months. If we're lining up, say, five to ten companies for that tranche, mm-hmm. they'll want to look at those companies. Do those companies have good growth? Have they got decent cash runway, you know, or are we just investing so they can keep their lights on? Yeah. That kind of stuff wasn't, it was done occasionally before COVID, but I think now, because people saw the kind of, you know, how many businesses were hard hit and there was a lot. Yes. So it's now a matter of, well, you know, is this business, if this business has been going for, say, four or five years and they were resilient enough to come through 2020 and 2021, then, you know, they're, they're obviously made of strong stuff. So yeah. the diligence on that level, and it's the same for the VC. Like the VC has a lot more responsibility now to kind of go through research, due diligence on the companies, yes, on the founders. You know, with it's not as simple as just, you know, Googling the founder and making sure, but there's a lot more to it. It's kind of, you know, looking through their financial forecasts, looking through their management accounts, looking through, you know, if they say they've got a million pound recurring revenue, can we speak to a client and actually verify that, you know, yes. getting reviews from clients, especially if it's a B2B business, that's a lot easier, obviously. Indeed. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more. And I think most investors now, if they're looking at a fund, there's various things they should definitely be looking at. But the main thing is like, does that fund have a track record in what they're doing today? Like, yeah. if I've invested in, I don't know, renewable energy for the last 10 years and now I'm a tech investor it's like well that doesn't always directly translate so I think most investors now once they've built that you know built that reputation or sorry once the fund has built that reputation yes investors kind of get to learn fuels very famous for like posting memes on LinkedIn and stuff like that yeah the main reason we do it is to get deal flow from founders so founders come to us Mm. you know we've got one of the I think we've got one of the highest followed LinkedIn pages in the VC sector purely from memes indeed and like you know everyone I speak to who I've you know first time meeting them it's oh I follow you guys you post memes (laughs) yeah cool but it does help us you know we get hundreds of companies approach us a month for funding Indeed. Not just for the memes, hopefully, but for our reputation yeah. as well. I, I mean, I think it's really about creating content that, mm. that resonates, um, you know, because the, when you look at the memes, they are about situations that finders, uh, sorry, founders find themselves yeah. in. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's content that resonates and gets consumed. And, yeah. you know, it has translated to a fantastic outcome, which mm. is more founders coming yeah. more deals more quality deals yeah no there's a lot and you know there's i think we did a post last week about you know translating what a vc says to what it actually means and like you know so many vcs say oh we're founder friendly and it's like okay how oh you know we, we invest in founders it's like it doesn't make you friendly like yeah no vc yeah. is going to say we hate founders or we're not founder <laughs> friendly so yeah i think that's a way of kind of making light of or making a joke of certain things that in the industry they used to happen a lot more. Yeah, I think now where there's kind of more emerging managers coming through, especially managers that are kind of run by ex-entrepreneurs, ex-operators, because like Mark, in his first company, he never raised VC money. He kept, he owned 100% of it when it sold. But yeah. one of the reasons he didn't raise VC money was because of some of the clauses, liquidation preferences, all of that. So yes. I think nowadays, you know, when founders look at VCs, any VC can write a check. As long as they've got the funds they've raised, they can write the founder a check. But, yeah. you know, what are they going to do after that money goes in? Are they going to 
you know, provide introductions and not just like, you know, I'm going to introduce you to my mate that might look at you in five years time. Like, can they provide relevant, you know, meaningful introductions to that founder? Yes. You know, yes. it's not just a lot of VCs sit on the board, turn up for the board meeting once a month and don't talk to the founder for until the next one. But it's mm. much more about, you know, working with the companies. We were quite unique pre-COVID. We used to have all of our investing companies in our office. Wow. So that was amazing from the investor relations point of view because you know you were talking to all the founders all the companies all the employees all day yes um we're opening a new building hopefully this summer and again we're hoping to get people back in but mm. you know most founders love telling you what they're doing and love telling you about the business so yeah it makes a lot of sense for vcs to be a lot more kind of on it with founders because otherwise from an investor relations point of view you know if you ask me about oh how's this company doing and i haven't spoken to them for six months it's I can only really tell you what I've read on a report. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. doesn't bring anything to life. Yeah. And when you are uh, out meeting potential investors, um, you know, are they asking you a bit about what the companies are doing? Uh, you know, you've mentioned to me before that you have a lot to do with the sort of the portfolio companies. Mm. And how does that sort of work when you're talking with the investors? Yeah, I think it's, there's, there's a couple of things. One, it's kind of like, you know, being able to tell an investor what the company does is kind of, that's your day job. You should be able to tell, even, you know, we've got a hundred and something companies in our portfolio now. I'll admit it's hard to keep track of all of them, but, you know, you read enough, you keep learning and all the rest and you listen yeah. to the founders. But telling an investor, you know, this is this company, this is what they do, that's great. But then being able to tell them, you know, they've just you know, signed up this new client or they've just got this new bit of, whatever it might be, they've just launched a new product or service. Yes. That's something that investors can relate to because, I mean, venture capital, early stage investing in, in general mm. is so much more interesting. I mean, I, I haven't met anyone that disagrees with this yet, but, you know, I've never told my mates down a pub about how interesting a pension fund is or anything like that. But yeah. talking about a startup <laughs> that's changing, you know, you're at Revolut and stuff like that, like yes. talking about companies that are actually doing something that people use, like that's a lot more interesting. So I think with investors, you know, investors might have a certain sector, you know, they might have spent their career in, you know, a SaaS business or whatever, they might have a certain sector they really like. So being able to tell them about a company that's doing something that's, you know, in their field of expertise. Yes. It's so much more powerful and it, it makes them kind of, you know, it aligns them with a, with a company. They get excited when they hear updates about it. And it also just means that when that company does come to exit, you know, every investor is rooting for them, not because they're going to get a multiple on their return, but because, you know, they want the company to do well. Indeed. Um, we had a company called Content Cow last year that got sold to Adobe. Yeah. <clears throat> At the time, it was one of Adobe's largest acquisitions outside of the States. So obviously, yes, from a financial point of view, it, investors got a great multiple, everyone was happy. But even beforehand, in the kind of run up to it, you know, all the investors were asking about it, you know, how they're getting on, do they need any support? Yeah. We've built a very large investor network now where we've got investors within our network that have certain you know, introductions they can make or skill sets. And they're always asking, you know, is there anything we can do to help the companies? And yeah, yes. we love that part of it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and that's sort of the network effect in yeah. a way and uh, it benefits everybody. It does. It helps from, you know, one of the best things you can do as a sales or investor relations person is when you talk to your investors, you know, ask for, it sounds super saying ask for referrals, but like, you know, ask within their network is there other people they know or talk to all the time? Because most investors talk to other people who do similar things and you know it's the best way and if an investor really you know bonds with one of your companies and it happens to be that one of their mates works with someone that could you know either do a follow-on round or acquire the company like it's 
it's the best value you can add and the the only way you can do that is by building up a volume of you know investors in the network yes indeed indeed um just stepping back um for a moment we we spoke a bit about how fundraising had changed in terms of there being a much bigger focus on due diligence um certainly post pandemic um have there been any other notable sort of changes um uh over the past couple of years i guess obviously the the method of communicating yeah obviously a lot of people have gone from doing face-to-face appointments to you know zooms googles teams whatever yeah but and also just over the phone like a lot more i used to drive around the country and i'd go up to manchester for three meetings and it would take out a whole day and yeah, all the rest whereas yeah. now i can have three meetings in manchester on on zoom or whatever and it takes up a few hours yes so i think that's kind of primarily it's made sales people's lives a bit easier but also the client's life like the client used to you know if, if i deal with a financial advisor they'd be taking an hour or two out of their day an hour to meet an hour to travel whatever it might be mm. whereas now you know that we can run through things in a 30 minute video call indeed um so that's been one thing the other thing has been kind of the way you communicate and that could be with existing or like, the way you get new investors because you know so many funds still rely on you know i'll just send out emails i use hubspot salesforce whatever crm yeah send out a mass email to my database and tell them that we've got a fund open which is great but most people now get 40 50 emails a day right, that they don't read right. so emails only get you so far but stuff like you know social media putting out content with podcasts putting out all that kind of stuff there are so many funds now that are more and more switched on yeah where you know different media communication methods different whether it's a you know writing a weekly blog or, you know linkedin post whatever it is yeah there's a lot more now where you know you can use that to capture an audience and i mean from the uk's point of view early stage funds have you know certain regulation they have to adhere to so you know these are high risk investments people have to understand that but you know once you've captured the right information on a potential investor you know talking to them about a company that really resonates or whatever it's a lot more kind of it's a lot more fluid now because you can do that within an initial zoom call yes it's it's also a lot more kind of investors can find out a lot more before that initial call so you know if we're if I'm talking to a potential investor, I can say, well, you know, if you want, we recorded a webinar last week. We did it live for our investors, but, you know, the recording's here. Watch that. Yes. Take 10 minutes to learn a bit about us. If you still want to have a chat, then we can do that. So, yeah, there's a lot more kind of that's definitely changed things. And I think for the better, because you can be a lot more efficient with your time now. You know, you can you can spend time on the things that really matter and mm. yeah cut out some of the stuff that probably doesn't matter that much yeah indeed <laughs> indeed no i, I think uh yeah that the, just the way you quantified that in terms of each stakeholder you know spent an hour traveling to get to the meeting had the meeting and then you know left yeah over the course of those three hours nowadays yeah you can fit five or six sort of exactly. Zoom meetings in so yeah it's and yeah. it's also like it's a lot more you know i used to do a meeting you know if i had a meeting at 10 o'clock all right then i'd drive to my next meeting then i'll have that and i'll drive to the next one and have that and then i'd get home send out three emails from that day and all the rest whereas now i can have a meeting i can say you know i'm going to send you this this and this it was sent 60 seconds after the meeting takes yes. place it's still fresh in the advisor's mind and you know that's a lot more effective use and also from you think if you're an advisor or you're an investor and you're talking to five, six different funds, mm. you, it's very easy to forget what the first one said. So, oh, indeed. Yeah, indeed. just kind of getting that sort of place where, you know, you've given them exactly what they've asked for. If you say, I'm going to send you this, 
make sure you send that thing first indeed and then yeah it's fresh in their mind sort of thing yeah that's it that's it and look i mean i think there's a very good um let's say tips uh for people in general in terms of the importance of following up mm. um uh, i wanted to see james whether you've got any tips for people who are considering a career in sales or maybe in, in investor relations yeah um i guess first one is kind of yeah i suppose from a communication skills kind of thing you know build up you don't need to have gone to university you don't need to i mean some places sure they want a you know mba degree and all the rest of it but for most people now if you can communicate well that's like the first first thing we'd look at if i was hiring mm. a salesperson now i want to see how they come across how they present how they talk all the rest of it yes. so i think you know building up your communication skills you can do you can watch youtube videos you can listen to podcasts you can watch podcasts whatever it is you know you can you can build that up for free that's Indeed. practicing um and then I guess building up a network. So even if you're younger, you know, talking to people, always being curious, always trying to find out, oh, what do you do? You know, what did you do before this? What are you doing? Like, what are you working? All that kind of thing is just, it will help you building a network. Everyone thinks, you know, you have to have, you know, this black book of contacts that you can call on and, you know, your, your friend works at this place and he can get you a job. But actually, if you build a network just naturally, mm. I'm not a big lover of networking events for the sake of just networking, but yeah, yeah. if you've got like industry specific events where you can chat to other people, kind of learn about what they do, it's it's the best way of doing it. You know, I've, I've had a few coffees with people recently where they've they said, you know, I'm doing this, I want to get into this side, you know, can we have a chat? And it's 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 an easy thing to say, you know, sales is great, but you know, salespeople usually go into sales for the money and then. They stay in sales because of the money, but actually, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other benefits. So I think it's um, building up their communication skills, mm. always kind of, as I said, being curious, you know, always trying to learn more. If you if you hear, so I probably, you know, annoy the hell out of bosses and stuff in the past where I just constantly ask, oh, why do we do that? Why do we do that? But, yeah. you know, constantly being curious about stuff, why things happen the way they do, yes. you know, why this founder's doing that or whatever it is so you can understand. And then it helps, you know, the use of, also embracing technology like yeah. there's so much there's so much tech out there now where you know i started off using you know a few years ago using calendly which at the time i was like oh, this doesn't make any sense now i couldn't be without it because rather than saying to you oh hey like are you free at one no well, mm. i'm free at three all the rest just send someone a link say you know pick a time that work great you then got tools like chat gpt everyone's talking about gpt at the moment <laughs> but like you know chat gpt has helped from a sales point of view from you know, if I say write a, an email that tells someone about this, it yeah. knocks it out. And it's important that you still stay sharp enough with your own skill set. But mm. embracing technology is saving people so much That's time. It. It's all those incrementals that add up. It's massive. Like, take fuel. We used to, you know, people used to send us a deck mm. over email. We'd get however many decks a day, look through a deck that takes 25 minutes sometimes. Yes. Whereas now, you know, we have a, a founder application on the website, founders come through the website. They tell us about their business that goes on. It's all automated. Yeah. The deals team then pick it up. It gets filtered out to relevant people. It it saves so much time. So yeah, it's just anyone going to sales, you know, make sure your communication skills are on point. If they're not, work on them, use some free resources, get some courses done, whatever. Yes. Um and then yeah, embracing technology and just always questioning everything, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, it might come across annoying, but you you learn so much just by asking people why they're doing 
whatever it is they're doing. Indeed, yeah. Look, I, I really, I, you know, I agree with all three points, but, but particularly, you know, the last one in terms mm. of curiosity and just sort of digging below the surface level mm. little by little because <laughs> that's where you find the sort of, you know, either the gold nuggets of mm. like, actually, yeah, I understand how this influences this. Um, but more importantly, you know, you understand the sort of incrementals and mm. you can help add them up to have a massive impact in the long run. So. Yeah, if you if you understand the basis of why someone wants to do something or why someone wants to know more information about your product or your service, it makes it a lot easier from a sales point of view yeah. to sell it. Because, you know, if I know that you like, I don't know, a certain aspect of something, I'm going to lean on that aspect, I'm going to leverage that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very easy that if I then see that, you know, we've got someone on mutual contact, I'll leverage that for the introduction. I can then talk to you about, oh, hey, I know, I see you know Tom. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. That it's, it sounds simple to say, but it's so many people don't do it. Indeed. Um, and I think also from a sales side, like once you're in those kind of entry level roles and just even more senior side of the thing, not enough people are specific about what they want. Like if you're speaking to someone, tell them what you want. And like I get so many emails and it just gets lost to me where, you know, someone will say, oh, hey, I want to talk about partnerships. And it's like, what like yeah. what i don't know what you do i don't know what like all the rest of it so i yeah. think if you're talking to someone if you're looking for a job if you're looking for to sell them something tell them what it is you want tell them what you're going to solve for them don't tell them you know hey i've hey you know i've got this fund it's that we invest in early stage ask if they do you know do you invest in early stage all right cool then tell them what you do but yeah yeah so many salespeople get lost in like dumping all their kind of this is everything I've got. <laughs> and then, you know, people switch off. Yeah. People have very short attention spans. So, oh, they do. Yeah, yeah, I normally read like the first three lines of a cold LinkedIn message. And if I can't work out what they do and what they want, it's kind of, yeah, I don't it, reply. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, I think understanding yeah, what people are motivated by, what their KPIs are, it's, it's yeah, very, <clears throat> very important um, in order to, to engage with them. Um, and, you know, I think, even now, one sort of gap that I've seen in the market is that there's still room for companies to be more KPI-led and driven with their employees so that they're like, actually, yeah, you know, this person's role is to absolutely you know, smash this, like lead to order conversion, for example, or you mm. know, to, to, to do this. And it kind of gives everybody a bit more purpose. It does, and it also makes everyone's work day go a bit quicker because... Like, yeah, there are kind of work for companies in the past where, you know, you wear all these different hats and all right, at a startup, you know, that's that's expected. You have to be able to wear different hats and you have to be able to pitch in. But also like, yeah, if you like you said, if you know what you're supposed to be doing, you can mm. just get on and do it. And, you know, if I know that, you know, tomorrow I've got to make some calls to these 10 of the existing investors and then I'm going to talk to these five new ones, you know, it's it's very easy to then structure my day so I can do that. Indeed. Um, and yeah, KPIs from a sales management point of view, KPIs are great because they help companies be able to see, you know, are we going to meet target? Are we, mm. you know, going to hit our, what we need to raise, all the rest of it? But also just from, you know, if a company has quite a large sales team, it's very easy to get bogged down in, oh, you know, I've got my, my pipelines on a spreadsheet and I've got mine on a notebook and I've got my, like, it's just yeah. easier to have a centralized KPI. And a lot of people don't want to be micromanaged. And I agree, I'd hate being micromanaged, but it's kind of, KPIs are a way of just knowing what your business is doing without micromanaging. So that's right. Makes yeah. life a lot easier for everyone. Oh yeah, it is. And it, you know, I mean, it, it it then it helps if say you've got a massive sales team and you know, 
you're looking at the funnel and there's a whole lot of stuff which is mid funnel and then it's like all right like once that you know either converts or gets lost there's nothing else coming in so you can then reposition and say look guys like yeah just have a little bit more of a look at the top Mm. or you know actually if stuff's coming through in the top and it's not going into the middle funnel yeah what's going wrong let's solve the problem yeah not enough people i mean crms obviously help massively like i've used salesforce i've used hubspot i've used dynamics like but you're right not enough people focus on every single stage of the funnel like yeah we kind of break ours down into you know we've had an initial conversation they've got some follow-up questions right through to like you know we've sent them the application the money's in the door yeah but it's kind of like you like you say if you don't keep constantly filling up the top of the funnel and things don't convert then nothing comes out the other end yeah indeed. Um, indeed. and it's the same for deal flow like we have we constantly have to keep looking at ways to get more founders you know more companies in the top of our funnel mm. so you know we, like we get on average about 300 companies a month apply wow. through our website yeah at pre-seed we invest in kind of 30 to 40 a year yeah at seed we invest in maybe 10 to 15 new companies a year so to go from you know three and a bit thousand companies down to kind of 10 to 15 at seed there's a lot of stuff to go through but you know it's yeah it, it makes life a lot easier if you you like you said you build those funnels out and it also helps i'm a big believer there's a lot of funds that have kind of quotas on you know diversity mandates for founders and stuff like that which is very important because mm. historically diversity in vc has been yeah very bad but yes. you know my biggest belief is you know if you build diversity at the top of the funnel yeah then you don't have you don't impose those kind of restrictive quotas further down the line because you've built a funnel at the first so yes. if you're saying okay we're going to invest in 10 percent, you know there's so many vcs now oh, we want female founding businesses that's great there's amazing female founded businesses but yes don't worry about getting them at the end of the funnel get them into the top of your funnel make Indeed. yourself approachable where a company can come to you if they don't have a warm introduction from someone you went to university with or whatever like yeah make yeah. the top of your funnel open and you'll get that diversity naturally you don't need to yeah just paint a picture that that's all you want because you're getting it across the board indeed yeah no no really good point i i mean yeah like there's a lot of conversations in terms of how difficult it is to you know approach vcs um mm. and uh you know particularly if yeah, if you're not male and went to a, yeah. a couple of different universities, we've got a podcast um, coming out. Uh, uh, it'll, it'll be released before before this yeah. one um, um, uh, with uh, Madonna Capital really talking about the funding gap. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, the gap, I guess, is caused as a result of a funnel. Um, and it, yeah, you know, approachability is part of that. Mm. So Yeah, like you yeah. said, there used to be a lot of like, you needed a warm introduction. Don't be wrong, warm introductions will always help, but actually, you know, a VC, if you do your homework and you've, like so many founders approach VCs and pitch that are completely wrong, they're the wrong VC for them to like from the start. Yes, And a lot of founders kind of, you know, when they talk to a VC and the VC says no, Mm. I mean, don't get disheartened, VCs see how many decks a a day. Yeah. And also a VC, from that initial skim of the deck, the VC doesn't understand your business from that. All they understand is, whether or not your business is right for them in that you know three to four minute skim of the deck they do so it's kind of you know don't worry about that initial response actually if you research the vc done your homework make sure they're the right vc for you you know get some references if you're looking at if you're a founder looking at a vc go on the vc's website go to their portfolio page yes pick a company at random and speak to that company say you know are they complete dicks or are they (laughs) were they useful investors for you you'll get a much better picture that way and then 
yeah, when you then get yourself into their funnel, yes. you have almost built a warm intro because you can say to that founder, hey, you know, as we're getting on, would you mind introducing me to the VC? And Indeed. then that's your warm intro. That's right. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It's so important, but so many people miss it. So, yeah, 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 that's it. That's it. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I could go, go on with a few different <laughs> stories about people trying to get warm intros and yeah. then, you know, you get burnt later on sometimes as well. So yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, you got to, you also got to be careful about who you provide an intro to. Um, but uh, yeah, well, look, James, um, you know, there were some really good um, uh, tips for people wanting to get into sales. You've also mentioned that, uh, you know, how you've, you know, you inherently in your job, you work with a lot of founders and investors, mm. um, and particularly the investors. Um, do you have any tips for founders um, based upon, you know, your, your interactions throughout uh, the different funds you've worked at? Yeah, I guess just a lot of founders, you know, once a VC is invested, they deal predominantly with like the investor director or the, the investment team. Yes. But I think, you know, something that Fuel have been big advocates of and previous funds I've worked at is, you know, having the sales team on a call where the founder does even like a 10, 15 minute update. Yes. Because eventually, you know, the sales team are going to be talking about your company to an investor. Mm, mm. If you don't, you know, if the sales team aren't equipped with enough information about your company and they can't talk to investors about it, it will affect the amount of funding that that fund can raise. So, yes. yeah, I think founders kind of, the type of founders that are very active with the investors is great. And don't be wrong, they've got their day jobs to do. Like they can't spend all day with their investors. But, you know, founders that, you know, regularly update people, there's a guy I used to work at a company that we funded from an old fund uh, called Sherpa. Yes. Andy, the founder, is so, like, his passion is unreal. And, like, he's yeah. built a hell of a business. And he always used to kind of, you know, text, WhatsApp, or just, oh, you know, a group WhatsApp with all the people from VC saying, you know, guys, have just, you know, I've got to deal with this potential massive client, yeah. whatever it was. And obviously, if we can help, great. But also just being able to know that and then tell an investor mm. results in so much more. So I think, yeah, founders that, prepare you know the board updates and stuff is great but preparing a kind of investor memo if you want that goes out once a month yes that vc can share it throughout the team the sales team are then armed with enough stuff sharing the decks and stuff is great um mm, mm. but yeah i think if more founders do that it'll be a lot easier for the sales people <laughs> yeah indeed indeed no really good uh good good insight because it's sort of there's that loop of you know founder um, you know, raises money um, and then deals with the investment team. However, later on, you know, if they want to have a follow-on round, the fund has to, you know, raise investment yeah. in order to bring that back to the founder. So you've kind of brought it full circle there, which is really good. Yeah, it's, it's so important. And there's so many companies that, you know, if they want to do a follow-on round, the VC will normally do the preemption or whatever else. But if they want to do a big bigger follow-on ticket, yes, it's just so important. And then so many companies kind of, you know, if you have a good business, it used to, like a year or two ago, it was very easy to get money. But now, you know, VCs are so much more stringent on what they're looking for. Mm. They want companies that, you know, every VC now seems to want a million quid of ARR and stuff like that. But yes. actually, you know, if you've kept them up to date and you keep your existing investors on board, you know, if they're good investors, they'll want to know about your company. The yeah. type of VCs that never ask you how stuff is going aren't usually the ones you want on your board that's right um but yeah it, it's so important nowadays yeah and look i think yeah definitely in sort of a few of the interactions um uh, on the podcast and just in the industry there's a very clear focus that you know vcs want to see 
a path towards profitability or a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think founders really need to be able to articulate that and demonstrate that they're executing that plan effectively to to reach profitability. Yeah, and also like this is where the kind of fundraising comes in at the start because if a founder says, right, we need to raise three million, Mm. that will take us to to a profitable in 2025 or whatever. Yeah. If you don't get there and you're not, all right, business has changed, everything needs to be able to adapt and all the rest. And it's always, you know, things can, best laid plans can go to waste sort of straight away. But actually, I think from a fat from a VC's point of view, if you're looking at companies that, you know, they're constantly reinventing themselves, are they going to do a new thing and a new thing and none of them work out? All right, that's hard. But actually, the investor will take a step back and say, well, hang on, you know, we can't keep finding a new business plan that doesn't pan out and then Mm. putting more and more capital in. So, yeah, I think founders talking to the VC, it's just so important to make sure that the VC aligns, the VC agrees with what you want to do. You know, if your goal is to get from today to a series A or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. if the VC buys in and understands it, that's great. But, you know, we spend a lot of time with companies going through their financial model when they first come in because everyone's financial models I mean, pre-revenue, it's just forget it. Like, <laughs> it's completely different. But, you know, once they're kind of decent level, you know, half a million quid of ARR, their financial model needs to be quite accurate because otherwise it's very difficult for the VC to justify, you know, the metrics that they're going to then follow on with. Yeah. We obviously have the follow-on fund and we, you know, we because we deploy, the, we open the follow-on fund in kind of January time and then we fully deploy it at the end of March. But mm. because we have that structure, we have the evergreen structure with our early fund, but the follow-on fund... You know, we, it's so important that we understand those metrics. It's so important that we see, you know, if a company said to us last year they're going to do 3x growth year on year, did they yes. actually do it? Because otherwise we just sort of carry on funding dreams. But I yeah. think, yeah, VCs now uh, and any of the angel investors as well, you know, there's so much more kind of looking for accountability from the founders. And if they said this is what we're going to do, it's kind of, okay, did you actually deliver on it? And mm. if mm. I, I don't get me wrong, there'll be always reasons why things can't happen, which happens every day. But yes. It's like, as I said, those ones that are constantly reinventing the wheel and then it never quite rolls. So yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. James, look, we've covered a lot today. <laughs> from, just a tad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It's been fantastic, you know, from your sort of journey, um, you know, starting off, uh, you know, at the bank and then getting into the different funds, raising money from all kinds of investors, yeah. um, uh, you know, and also diving into your engagement with the uh, the portfolio funds at Fuel. Um, you've given some really good tips to people who are, you know, looking to get into, say, sales, um, understanding the importance of the funnel, um, and then, you know, some really good tips for founders at the end. So yeah. thank you so much yeah, for, thanks for sharing me, everything. Really good. Yeah, no thank worries. You so much. No worries. Um, thanks again for joining us, James. Thanks for having me.